great singing. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark 12. Mark chapter 12. And we'll be looking at the story in verses 1 through 12. Let me read this text for us. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came... He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went their way. What a sad story. Do you ever wonder why we read sad stories? Why we watch movies that make us cry? Why we sing songs that touch our hearts and cause us to feel despondency and sorrow. Even the song we just sang a few minutes ago. You don't walk out of here with a pep in your step listening to these words describing the way that the Son suffered on our behalf. We've been subjecting ourselves to these types of things, this kind of torture, inflicting ourselves with this type of pain for thousands of years. He thinks through the classics of literature like Macbeth and Hamlet, or even thousands of years before that, Odipitus Rex, or even in our more modern day, a movie like a Titanic, or as me and my wife like to note, anything above 98% on Rotten Tomatoes would be a frequently sad movie. But we sit, we watch, we read, we listen. But why? Why do we want to even feel that way? Aristotle conjectured an answer here in his book Poetics. He says that we want to read this type of material and expose ourselves to these elements because they can evoke fear and pity. The fear of falling to the same vice or the pity of experiencing the same downfall. And then he says, when we feel that, there's this experience of catharsis. This this 
this purifying, this purging, this relief that comes from having experienced the tragedy secondhand. And we remember no matter how bad things get, at least this didn't happen to us, or at least it's not happening to us in this moment. Now that may be Aristotle's opinion on why we do that, but I think for those of us who are believers, we may do it for a different reason. Christians like to experience these things solely because it gives voice to what it means to live in a fallen world. Cry over its injustice. To long for final vindication. I remember a few years ago, my wife and I were at the movies and we went and saw Les Mis, Victor Hugo's novel adapted for screenplay. And there was this particular moment in which the lead character, Anne Hathaway, begins to sing, I dreamed a dream. And she had this hopeful life and had been forced into this world of prostitution. And that song describes just the the bitterness that she experienced having had these high expectations and hopes of then having those dashed against the realities that she faced in that hard world of the French Revolution. And I remember sitting there, listening to the people around me, grown men crying out loud over that very song. And people paying, ultimately, collectively, millions of dollars to go see that film. I don't know what the unsaved person felt in that room that day, but I know what I felt. Oh God, please rescue us from our plight. Or the sin that we've brought upon ourselves is more than we can bear. Come and deliver. Fix these situations. Stop these things from happening. So, we cry. We give voice to frustrations of living in a fallen world But those things are mere shadows. The stories, the songs, the books, the movies, they're shadows. But what about the substance? What about the reality? Do you ever cry? Do you ever shed tears over those things? I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm actually frustrated by the fact that I can cry over a sappy scene in a Disney movie or some fictional book and yet fail to shed tears over the real issues that we face in our day. The things that clearly outrage God. I think of on a social level and a spiritual level, socially, the millions of children who are murdered in the United States every year. Genocide around the world, sex trafficking that's out of control. Just think with me, when was the last time you actually cried over those things? I'm not meaning to evoke guilt this morning. I'm just trying to express the frustration over the fact that we sometimes will lament audibly things that are fake, but ignore the things that are real right before us. Spiritually, you think of the lost and their plight, the fact that they've rejected Jesus, their eternal destiny in hell. You cry over those things? I don't know about you, but sometimes I wish that I could align my passions, both positive and negative, with those of my Lord and Savior. I just feel like I'm out of sync. I feel like I'm not crying over the right things. And part of it is the secular society and world has trained my, my emotions one way, and yet Scripture, Scripture intends to train them in a different direction. 
God actually does intend for us to experience emotion, not all positive, but even negative emotion toward things that He opposes. Our Lord wants us to hate the things that He hates, to be in shock at the things that shock Him, to express outrage toward things that outrage Him. He wants us to feel the way He feels, and He's given us the capacity to do this through the pages of Scripture. Sometimes these adjustments of our emotions come through instructions and propositions, but more often than not, they come through stories. Mark's story, or account of Jesus, has been retraining our hearts to value the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is presenting Him as the divine Messiah. He's luring us to follow Him in the radical ways that He expects And one of the amazing ways that Mark redirects our heart is with the issue of Jesus' authority. Typically, when we hear the word authority, especially someone else having authority, it's something that we reject, it's something that we repel, it's something that is disgusting to us, distasteful, because we are Americans. We like our autonomy, our independence. We like to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and do things our own way. But Mark has been showing us that there is a supreme value, something good about Jesus' authority. And as we learn to value His authority, at the same time, Mark's teaching us to hate something else. And that is the rejection of such authority. Mark wants us to look at it with disgust. The Holy Spirit intends for us to see people rejecting Jesus and to be revulsed by it. And the way he does that is primarily through this story today. We have a story intended not just to expose the beauty of Jesus' authority that we saw in the text last week, but it actually looks at the horror of rejecting it. Notice this is a parable, it's a story, it's a story, and when read in verse 12, that it's a story told against them. Who's them? The religious leaders. The people who were rejecting Jesus' authority. Jesus is telling this story not just for entertainment, He's telling it because He wants people to understand what it looks like, how they should feel about rejection of His messianic authority. One author described a parable as this. It's a way of speaking about God to which mere intellectual response is not possible. I would agree. So this story underscores the horror of rejecting the authority of Jesus. And all I want to do for us today is just trace the major major themes of it and we'll bring it around to its fullest application at the end. Several themes to this story about rejecting Jesus' authority. Basically, I'm going to point you to a few different accounts or features of it. The first one feature that I would draw your attention to is in verses 1 through 5, and that is the graciousness of God. The graciousness of God. Notice in verse 1, he began to speak to them in parables, and notice how the parable starts off. It's very familiar to their Near Eastern ears. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. Now, in this story that Jesus is telling, he first and foremost wants us to recognize that there's this powerful and authoritative landowner. And you're going to see his power and his authority, but he's also going to want you to note this man's grace. 
vineyards in that time represented a lucrative business opportunity. And the way that Mark describes this with all the detail about digging a wine press and building a fence around it and actually securing the land, this is a pretty expensive operation. It's one that's going to be fully underwritten by this one man, and he says that he leases it to some tenants. Now, the term lease is the same way you would think about it today. It's a commercial transaction involving a large capital investment. And this even in the middle voice, it implies that this isn't just a business venture for charity. This is something that he is doing for himself. He expects a profit. Now, he delegates this capital investment into the hands of some tenants. And then he goes away to his own country. This was normal in that time for people to make an investment somewhere else and then go live. And many of you here in southwest Florida probably have done the same thing. Drop a chunk of change somewhere in the United States, get a business going, and then come and live here. The interesting thing about this guy's particular investment is it wasn't like an annual crop where he's going to see an immediate payoff by the end of the year, but a vineyard, that's at least four to five years to get a return on that investment. So he's going to drop all that cash, and then he has to wait for years to see any return on this thing. Four to five years. That's plenty of time for the owner to anticipate the reward of his sacrifice, and that's also plenty of time for the tenants to feel securely entrenched in their new home. Now let me take a little commercial break here. You need to hear this the way they would have. I want you to pick up on the cues that they would have picked up on. For those first century Jews, there would have been a familiarity with the Old Testament that would have immediately disclosed for them the meaning of the story right as it started. Because Jesus is borrowing heavily from the words of Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7, where a similar parable was given to the people. And in that parable, God Himself is this owner who plants a vineyard, and He expects a return, and what He gets is sour grapes. And in the end, He destroys it. Now, Isaiah will go on to expand upon the meaning of that parable and make it clear that the vineyard is Israel, the owner is God, the sour grapes are their rebellion against Him, and God will judge it. For them here, they can clearly know that, okay, this is a story, but it's not just any story, it is a story about us, it is a story about the vineyard, it is a story about Israel, but it's not just about Israel. Jesus adds a new character to the story that wasn't in Isaiah chapter 5, and that is the tenants. These people that he leased the land to, that's the focus of Jesus' story. It's similar but different. Jesus' story is not just going to be about the nation of Israel, but about her leaders. And the bad fruit is not the focus, but the rebellion against the landowner. Now let's get back to the story with that symbolism in mind. Jesus takes this different turn. He focuses on the tenants. And look at verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant of the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So we fast forward four to five years. The time has come. It's time to get a return on the investment. The season is the fruit that the owner expects. And so he sends a slave. 
Now, don't think antebellum slavery in the South. This is actually an official representative of his household. And he's sending him to collect the previously agreed upon proportion of the crop. It's time for a payoff. And I can only imagine the excitement of having dropped a ton of money and finally expecting some of that to come out. For those of you who work a regular job, it's called payday. (laughs) You can't wait for the check to come. And imagine the shock, the disgust, the horror of having worked and sacrificed for four years and it's your time and it's time for you to draw that check and there's nothing there. That's essentially what happens here. It says in verse 3, instead of giving him the reward promised him, the, the amount of money that he was due or the crops, verse 3 says they took him. They took the official servant and the representative of the owner and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, naturally, you're asking, what? (laughs) The servant was an emissary of the owner. And they take him, they incarcerate him, they beat him, and then they send him away empty-handed. I don't know about you, but it seems to send a pretty strong message to the owner about their intentions for his field. And even though the broken up body of his servant has sent a loud and clear message to the owner, he delays the demand for justice and scandalously sends another servant. He gives them another chance to pay what they owe, to hand over the return of the investment that they had promised. And what I want you to note in these next few verses is the escalating graciousness of the owner that's met by the escalating rebellion of the tenants. Look at verse 4. And he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Now, they do this one a blow to the head, a near mortal blow, and they don't just send him back empty handed, they send him loaded with insults, which is a big deal in an honor based culture like the Middle East. Now, we're thinking the owner is definitely going to act. You've heard the old saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. What happens here? Verse 5. And he sent another. (laughs) He sent another. He sent another official representative. He gave them another chance to give that which they owed him. Even after they had beat the first one, nearly killed the second one, he sends another one. And this is an amazing and unfathomable grace toward these rebellious tenants. In fact, It borders on foolishness in some of our minds. Who would ever do this? And notice what they do to this third opportunity to make things right with the owner. And him they killed. Remember, as the grace escalates, so does the rebellion. This time they make the ultimate statement by killing the servant. And so, there's a pattern here that continues As Mark portrays his account here, this doesn't just happen three times, but it continues to happen. The owner just keeps sending people, giving them more chances to repent of their hostility and and to submit the fruit that they had agreed to give the owner in the first place. And at the same time, they keep rejecting it. They keep killing and beating And the verse says, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now it's time for another commercial break here because, again, we have to get this the way that they would have. So far, we've identified the characters in this parable. But who are the servants of the owner? 
Who are these servants that he keeps sending? If the fruit expected is the righteousness from God's people, if the tenants are religious leaders of God's people, if God is the landowner, who are these servants that he keeps sending? Well, you may remember from reading your Old Testament that the word servant is often affiliated with the prophets. Remember Elijah said he was the servant of the Lord. Isaiah was the servant of the Lord. Here, that's clearly what's going on. It's the prophets. The prophets were sent to God's people for hundreds of years, and they were called to submit the fruits that God expected of justice and repentance and obedience. And yet, what had Israel done through its history? If you've never taken a look at Israel's history, it's not a good one. (laughs) How had her leaders responded? It was typical of them to take these men who had represented God to reject them, to beat them, and even kill them. Scripture records that the prophet Jeremiah, for example, was beaten and put in stocks in Jeremiah 20. Another prophet named Uriah, not the one associated with David, was killed by the sword in Jeremiah 26. The prophet Zechariah was stoned, according to 2 Chronicles 24. And... Jewish history records that Amos, Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, and Habakkuk were all eventually killed. They were cop killers. They were people who were in official rebellion against God. They were entrenched in their stand against the rule of God, and they had a history of rebelling against Yahweh. Now, it's at this point that I think I would agree with Martin Luther, who said, If I were God... And the world had treated me as it treated him. I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. Does anybody else feel that way? The amazing grace of God to keep extending opportunities to submit to his authority only for people to reject him. And I think we're beginning to see the horror of rejecting God. And let me make this personal for you. Because it's easy to talk about the horror of rejecting God as some glistening generality. But what about your own rebellion? After all, it's His vineyard, your life, and everything in it is His. He created it. And yet we live hostily by taking over these things for our own happiness and for our own profit. And that's established. But what do we do with His frequent offers of pardon? We turn it down. You reject them, and some of you even express rage toward those who would encourage you to make things right. I just think of some who could be here today, or some that you know. How many preachers have you heard? How many Bible verses have you read? How many friends has God sent your way to invite you to turn from your rebellion and to trust in His good rule? How many family members have encouraged you to surrender to the Lord, and yet you reject and reject and reject. And my prayer for you today is that you would see God's grace in a fresh way and the foolishness of scorning God's Son. We need to get back to our story. We've noted the Father's grace, but we also see another unexpected twist, and that is the Son's uniqueness. The Son's uniqueness. Look at uh, verses 6-8. through He still had one other. He had been this gracious. He still had one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him 
and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, Mark intends for us to recognize Jesus as the unique Son and God's final offer to His people. Naturally here, we're expecting wrath, retribution, and vengeance. Legally, the owner would have had a right to secure some soldiers to come and to cast these men out and execute them, and yet he's not doing that. He's not sending an army. He's sending his very own son. And notice the way that he says it. He still had one other, a beloved son. The grammar here is emphatic. It's talking about the finality of the owner's grace. This is his last option. But it's also talking about the uniqueness of the son, his only son, his specially loved one, This is one that's on a totally different level than all the slaves. This isn't just an official representative that works for him, that's a part of his household. This is his very own flesh and blood, if you will. And i got to admit, it's hard to rationalize the father's motive in this. Why would this happen? The only hint that we receive here in the text is the word respect. In a culture where honor was even more important than life, The Father grants them one more chance to do the honorable thing and presumes the best about them that surely, surely, of course, they would listen to my own Son. But notice what the insurrectionists do. They recognize the Son as He approaches. They must have seen Him before. And as He's approaching, they conspire together to kill Him. And they ultimately reveal their deepest motive. They show their hand here. What do they want? The text says, They want to do this because the inheritance will be ours. You ever heard the term eliminate the competition? This is literally what's going on here. They want to get rid of him. And so this is what they do. As soon as they see him, they take him into their possession. They bind him. They incarcerate him. Then it says that they kill him, ending his life. And then notice this detail that Mark adds. They throw him out of the vineyard. Which reveals the pinnacle of their dishonor. Refusal to bury a body was and still is an incredible offense. So they not only want him to die, but they want to dishonor him. They hope that the animals will ravage his body. And what we have here is the climactic act of the owner's grace. The sending of his only son has been met with the climactic act of the tenant's rebellion. The premeditated execution of the son. I think you're starting to see the connection here, don't you? You're beginning to understand this as the original audience would have. Who was it that possessed the unique relationship with the Father? Who was the final act of God's grace toward Israel? Who would the rebellious leaders conspire to seize and murder and defame? I assure you, Jesus' audience knew who this was. The Old Testament had promised them that a unique Son of God would come and deliver them with authority. He was actually called a son of God. They just thought that that was a a symbol for a coming king. 2 Samuel 7, verses 13-14. But Psalm 2 made it very clear that this son, this special representative was going to come. He was going to rule and reign. People would rebel against him. Ultimately, he would prevail. They knew that a son was coming. Even the demons in Mark have let loose the secret that this is not just a royal son, but it's even the son of God. Chapter 3, verse 11, and 5, verse 7. So Jesus' audience knew who the son was. They're picking up what he's laying down. The original readers of Mark definitely knew who the son was. Why is that? Because the book of Mark begins and ends with this disclosure. 
that Jesus is the Son, the Son of God. And then there's two special instances within the book, both of which we've already seen, in which the voice of God Himself comes down from heaven and proclaims, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, both at the baptism of Jesus and at the transfiguration. And so here, in the middle of His enemies, I want you to get what Jesus is doing. He is identifying Himself as the Son, and He is crystallizing His plan to die at their hands. And such truth shocks and enrages. But it's true. This tells us that Jesus has come as God's most extravagant expression of grace Yes, we've all tried to claim ownership for ourselves, but Jesus has come on behalf of the Father to rescue you from the inescapable justice due to you for your insurrection. Please note this, friends. He does not come to improve their vineyard, to make their lives better. He comes to have them relinquish sinful control. These religious leaders want exclusive ownership. And don't we all want that? Don't we all want to run our lives the way we think that they should be run? I understand that desire. When somebody tells me, I don't want Jesus, I reject Jesus, not now. What I hear in that is, I like running my life the way I'm doing it now. No thank you. We want autonomy. We want control. But... This is the Son of God. This is God's unique representative. This is His special Son. In rejecting Jesus, you're not rejecting a family member, a friend, an ideology, a famous religious leader, but the unique representative of God Himself, His dearly beloved Son. Hopefully, this can make the rejection of Jesus a little more personal. Less like a debate. This is God's outpouring of grace to you when He offers Jesus to you. It's a horrible thing to reject the Son. It overlooks His uniqueness. It spurns the Father's grace. And the next verse will show us that it ignores the Father's retribution. It ignores the Father's retribution. That's the next major theme we see here in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Note how Jesus ends the story. He's inviting them to contemplate the consequences associated with rejecting the sun. This question will hang in the air like a mushroom cloud after a nuclear detonation. Jesus has dropped a bomb. He has revealed himself to be the sun. He has shown how these rebellious leaders have scorned God's grace. And the question is, what will the owner do? This is especially clear in the original language where the Greek word here for owner is kurios, Lord. It's the same word that the Old Testament Jews were using to translate the special name of God Himself. But it also meant just an owner. So here, the parable and its meaning meet And he's asking, what will the owner, God Himself, do in light of those who reject His Son? The text tells us. He will come and destroy. Now interestingly, he doesn't just use the word kill here. 
He uses the word destroy, a strong word talking about nullifying their influence. He's going to destroy the tenets. He's going to destroy their capacity to lead. He's going to destroy the religious leaders who hijacked his vineyard. And Jesus here looks his opposers in the face and threatens their annihilation. And the annihilation of all those who follow him. Them. This would happen, by the way. No less than 40 to 50 years later, there would be a destruction that would come upon these very men. Rome, as opposed to Assyria or Babylon in times past, would be the instrument that God would use to bring His judgment upon these men. History records that the Roman general Titus would slaughter and enslave hundreds of thousands of Jews, laying Jerusalem under siege. And notice what he would do. This horrible. He'd crucify all the escapees in full view of those within the city walls, often hundreds of people at a time. And the pinnacle of Titus' conquest was none other, history will tell us, than the conquering and the decimation of the temple and its leadership. This is no idle threat. It's not just destruction, but there's also delegation of that authority and power to a new group. Notice, he says, and he will give the vineyard to others. What does that mean? What is he talking about? Well, he's not talking about a wholesale replacement of the nation. He's talking about the leadership. There would be a new leadership structure for God's people, and it would no longer be these scribes and priests and Pharisees, but it would be the apostles and the prophets the people who were built on Jesus Himself. For those of you who are in the theology class, or excuse me, Ephesians class this morning, you just studied this in Ephesians chapter 2, that the church would be built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Christ Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. That's exactly what Jesus is forecasting here. There would be a new group who would take responsibility for the people of God. And what does this do for us? Ultimately, it reminds us that God's mercy has its limits and the rejection of the Son will not be tolerated. The target of this is self-professed religious leaders, but I want you to know that it's true of everybody. It could be this morning that you are on a collision course with judgment, even if you find yourself to be religious, and the only thing that separates you from a rebellion, I mean a rebel or a repentant receiver of God's grace is how you have treated Jesus, His Son. Have you submitted to Him, or do you resist and reject Him? I've always had this kind of moral dilemma when I used to hear people say, especially pastors, you deserve to die because you crucified God's Son. You know, I read a text like this and I just naturally think, I didn't crucify Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't want to bear the wrath of God. I mean, I'm just, I know people who think, I'm a little more passive toward Jesus. I may not be aggressive and all in for Him, but I certainly didn't crucify Him. I'm not going to go to that length. My question for you, and even the question I've had to ask myself over the years, is this. With whom do you align yourself? Do you align yourself with those who crucified Jesus? Do you still try to retain autonomy over your self-rule, rejecting His terms of salvation and deliverance? Who's, here's a better question. Whose regime do you support? 
Whose regime do you support? Is it Jesus and His exclusive claim of ownership over your life, or is it the company of those who reject that? Christ yourself, I would say that if you say self, if you say, you know, I'm not for Jesus, I'm not really against Him, I do kind of like running things my own way, you have aligned yourself with the opposition party and her leadership, and you will suffer their fate. Dear Christian, what about your friends and family? It would be easy to think that they're just kind of neutral in this standoff. There is no neutrality. You're either for Him or against Him. And this vindication reminds us of just how personally God takes our response to the Gospel. The Gospel is not just some set of propositions to believe, but a glorious person to be embraced. And I know how it goes. Especially when we start thinking about our own family because we think, you know what, if I bring this up, when I talk to them about this, it just always leads to conflict and I don't want to disrupt the peace and I don't want to run them off. My question would be, and I just say this compassionately, where are you going to run them off to? They're already in rebellion against Jesus. Is there some other quadrant of hell to which they can go? Now, I'm not saying that you just go home and blast everybody with threats of hell and scorn. But I am saying that there comes a point in time in which we actually have to have hard conversations with people. There is no middle ground. They're not just kind of okay with Jesus. They are either for Him or against Him. And they have rejected His Son. Man, that should be a motive for us to continue to plead with Him for the sake of the Gospel and to look for good opportunities to share the truth. Rejecting Jesus is a horrible thing. It's horrible because of the Father's grace and the Son's uniqueness and the Father's retribution. Well, there's one more thing that we see here in this story that makes this so bad, so unwise to reject, and that is the Son's vindication. The Son's vindication underscores the horror of rejecting Jesus. Look at verses 10 to 12. The story's over, but Jesus is going to give an explanation. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let me just stop there. Now, this explanatory note that Jesus gives puts a different twist on the ending of a really sad story. Right now, the way that it ends isn't good at all. You've got people who have clenched their fist in rebellion against God. He's offered them opportunity after opportunity. He squashes the rebellion. The end. But Jesus thankfully gives this addendum. Jesus has made it clear that He will be rejected, that He will die. But He quotes this verse. He references them back to Psalm 118, one of the popular hymns especially sang during this Passover time particularly verses 22 to 23, to remind them that this rejection of the Son has been part of God's plan all along. And it will be recycled for His glory. When you're looking at the original psalm, Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23, it's basically this little analogy that is talking about stones that have been brought to the temple to build Solomon's temple. And one of which seemed unimportant or unuseful, and the builders had somehow cast it aside. They just thought, this isn't needed. We're not going to use this for the project. And then in the end, 
Now, this could be a foundation stone or a capstone. It's more than likely a capstone. In the end, it just seemed like the way that things were fitting together, they would actually end up needing this stone that was initially rejected, and they put it there. Now, the Jews would read that in Psalm 118 through the Old Testament lens, and they would think of David being initially rejected by um, the people of the day because he was so small and he didn't seem like he would make a good leader, but he ended up being the king. Or sometimes the Jews would use this verse to think about themselves. They were the nation, the underdogs that were supposed to lose, and God had granted them victory, and sometimes they would win. And yet here, Jesus takes it and applies it to himself. And Mark's original readers would have understood that this vindication ultimately was this Jesus who was rejected by the religious leaders ultimately would become the most important stone of all in this new temple. He may have been rejected by the religious leaders, but his resurrection would ultimately reverse that and he would be seen to be the most important, the supremely valuable, the one on which everything would be put together. Peter, from whom Mark draws much of his material, says it's this way in 1 Peter 2, 4-7. Just listen as I read. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Notice this. He's saying it's all going to happen through Jesus. For it stands in the Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Here's the reality. The religious leadership of the day may have rejected Jesus, but ultimately everything would come through Him. They would try to write Him off, but ultimately He would win. It's a great reminder. Mark's been showing us this all along. It doesn't matter who's winning in the first round. What matters is who wins in the end. And what we know here is that Jesus wins in the end. While their corpses would rot away in the dust, Jesus would reign forever in heaven. And even today, fists raised in rebellion will give way to knees bowed in submission. Cries of scorn and derision will give way to proclamations of ceaseless praise. He wins. And the text adds, it will be the Lord's doing. It will be marvelous in our eyes. Why would you ignore the inevitable winner? I'm not a betting man. If I was a betting man, I think I'd look at my odds. And when I look at the odds in this particular situation, I think, okay, where do winners end up today? The people who end up first in this life, where do every one of them end up? I mean, talking about pretty high odds. They end up in the grave. No matter how famous, no matter how successful, no matter how awesome their life may seem, they all eventually die. And what about Jesus? If I'm thinking about where I'm going to put my money, where did Jesus end up? Resurrected and ascended into heaven? Those are pretty good odds. I like, I like what I'm looking at there. The resurrection is the vindication of Jesus as the Son. He may have suffered and died, but He was vindicated unlike any other. Why would you ever bet against that? It's a horrible and tragic thing to reject the rule of Jesus. On September the 2nd, 1990, 
New York City once, became, once again became the locale for a murder that horrified the nation. There was a family of four from Provo, Utah, and they had finally made their long-anticipated trip to the U.S. Open tennis tournament. It was a mom, a dad, and two barely-grown sons eagerly waiting for the subway to take them to Flushing Meadows, where the tournament was being held. While they were waiting, the family was assaulted by a group of four young people. The attackers had pushed the mother to the ground, and they were kicking her in the face. And in response, the older of the two boys leapt to his mother's rescue, and he was killed in the attempt. The judge overseeing the case, Edwin Torres, delivered the toughest possible sentence in New York at that time. Remember, they didn't have the death penalty in New York in the 90s. It was a life without parole for all four. And this was seen as extreme in the day, and he said that ultimately he was trying to make a statement, to sound alarm against a society which, and I'm quoting his words here from the ruling, in which a band of marauders can surround, pounce upon, and kill a boy in front of his parents, and then stride up the block to Roseland and dance until 4 a.m. as if they had stepped on an insect. For a mother to hold a dying child in her arms, murdered before her very eyes, is a visitation that the devil himself would hesitate to conjure up. And then notice his final words, that cannot go unpunished. That cannot go unpunished. Even if you dislike the concept of judgment, these words of impunity from this judge invite us to respond sympathetically. Do they not? Justice must be done. What an outrage! That's what the story intends to do. This is the way that Jesus wants us to feel. The judge through this parable has spoken and with this statement he intends to incite shock and horror and outrage at the rejection of the son. There's going to have to be some cause for this. Why would anybody do this? What an outrage! How could someone spurn the father's kindness and overlook the son's uniqueness and ignore the father's retribution and neglect the son's vindication? How could you let anyone you know do that? This is outrageous. Look with me at verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but fear the people. Notice this. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they went away. Notice that. Against them. They knew it. They knew it. Let me ask you today, that was for them, but does the Holy Spirit today tell this parable against you? Are you the one who is rejecting Jesus and His rule and His reign over your life? If you're here today and you have rejected Jesus, this story is intended to expose the horror, unveil the foolishness of your decision. Do not spurn God's grace culminated in Jesus. 
Yes, he, he built this world for you to represent him. And sure, you took ownership of it yourself. You've tried to run things your own way. Things don't go as great as you hoped they would. You know that you're in rebellion against him. But he consistently and constantly is pleading with you, return, repent, receive my son. That's why he came. He lived the righteous life that you couldn't live. He died the death that you deserve to die. And he rose again so that you would know that this was true and could be true of you. This parable may be against you. So receive him. If you've submitted to Jesus... The parable may not be told against us, but it may be told for us. Insofar as that God intends for us not to take it lightly that others still reject Him. He wants us to feel the weight of that. May we comprehend the seriousness of Jesus' rule and be compelled to lead other people toward that. How's that going for you? Do you plead for the loss that you know to be reconciled to God? Maybe the simplest takeaway from a message like this for you this week is just the need to be compelled to prayer and the pursuit of someone this week with the gospel that you know that God has put on your heart. There's one final group I'd like to address before we close. You may think I've covered it all. We've got those who have rejected Jesus. We've got those who have submitted to Jesus. But what about those of you who are here today and you're thinking, you know what? I don't think I've rejected Jesus. I'm just not sure that I've submitted to Him. I think I'm somewhere in between. I want you to know that you very well could be in the most dangerous place of all. There's no middle ground with Jesus. And the parable makes this clear. You're either part of the regime that rebels against him and does things their own way, or you're part of the regime that submits to King Jesus. I would only ask you a few questions to help determine whether or not you're submitted to Jesus or against him. Are you ready? First question. Like these religious leaders, do you ignore God's repeated invitations for fruit from your life? Two, do you claim that which is God's for yourself? Time, money, relationships, and career. Then three, do you continue to do whatever you want because you don't think God notices or even cares? This parable may be against you. You need to examine yourself today. And with these admonitions, I know of no better way to transition into our time around the Lord's table. This memorial meal is intended for those who have submitted to Jesus, for true Christians. The time that we're about to partake of is the time for believers to consider their own sin and God's grace shown in the sacrifice of Jesus. So, if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, if you think you're in that first category or the last category, I want you to use this time to think about